0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. We'll also be joined by Dan Reed, Grace's new director of discipleship and education. Together we'll be talking about what covenant theology is and why it's the best lens for reading the whole of the Bible in unity how the various covenants God makes all contribute to an overarching covenant of grace. And we'll introduce Dan Reed's new sermon series on the book of Titus, with an orientation in the challenging ministry context for establishing a church in ancient Crete. Well, it's now the month of June, which means a new milestone in the life of Grace has been reached. Dan Reed, who before now was our soon-to-be Director of Discipleship and Education, has now formally joined our staff as Director of Discipleship and Education. So Dan, I want to welcome you
1: to the staff at Grace. Ah, thank you very much. I'm very excited about this. You're excited and not at all fearful, I take it? Oh, I was actually talking to Dave the other day, and I was realizing that I'm actually very fearful. It's uh, a lot of concern. Am I going to be able to measure up to this amazing title that you've <laughs> given me? Uh, and just to get the support and say, hey, you, you're gonna, you're coming on. We're excited for you. We'll help you do your best. Uh, I'm very excited and moving beyond the fear, but there's a little bit there. Yeah, well,
0: we are really excited and joyful to have you working At Grace and look forward to your contributions. Uh, For our listeners, basically the two areas where you are focused right now at Grace are discipleship and education. So obviously with education, we have in mind like Sunday school and and adult education, like things where we're formally educating people in theology. Discipleship, that one is maybe a little bit broader, but uh, Have you given some thought to the significance of this discipleship mission and and what that might entail?
1: Yeah, I think when we look at the New Testament, when we look at uh, especially the Great Commission, uh, really the thing that Christ is calling his disciples to do is go and make disciples. And so there's this biblical picture of disciple making, that this is one of the chief jobs of the church uh, is to pass the faith on from one generation to the next. One of the things that's difficult is uh, discipleship is very broad, and there's a lot of pieces to it. And one of the conversations we've had is sometimes we make it too specific. Uh, It's just about teaching. It's about getting together and reading the Bible and going through it, or it's just about the community getting together in prayer. But there are a lot of pieces to discipleship, and how can we as a church uh, look at discipleship in this broad category and say, what can we do for the people of grace? What can we do for the church? What can we do for our our city Uh, in bringing people to understand and know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and put him at the focus and center of your life? Um, And so giving some ideas to that, we've talked through what will small groups look like? What would youth group look like? Again, what would Sunday school look like? Um, So kind of still in the process of dreaming uh, to see what that would look like.
0: I like the way you put it, dreaming because a church our size, which is still relatively small, has so much potential. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we are trying to do is realize that potential more and more. And so discipleship is a really broad category, but it is exactly what the church is here to do and to promote. So as we seek to help people find their way in Jesus, discover the, the gifts and talents, the calling that, that he has placed in their lives, and, and to use those things for one another and for his kingdom, all of that really falls under this heading of discipleship. So what Dan is going to be helping us do at Grace is really live into that category a little better. And we're going to look at, at how to do discipleship better because we want to make disciples in the fullest sense. When we talk about the distinctives of Reformed theology, probably the most distinctive thing has to do with the way that we approach the Bible as a whole. And the term that we use to describe the the lens through which we read scripture is covenant theology. So, Cameron, you used to teach theology to high school students, right? Yeah. And did you ever
2: have the opportunity to teach any covenant theology? Of course, yes. Um, I jumped at the opportunity. Really, it was whenever I taught the Bible, I kind of felt like I was teaching covenant theology, but maybe that's just because... Because I'm Reformed. Yeah, yeah, I did, though. And it it would always start, actually, at the very beginning of the Bible, because I think that's that's where it does start. But we'll get to that in a little bit, maybe. Did you find that explaining covenant theology, like, it
0: was easy for students to grasp? Or were there kind of uh, pitfalls? Because I find that most people, if they're familiar with the scripture at all, they know, like, God makes covenants. Mm-hmm. But if you go beyond that and say there's, there's like a theology of covenant, that's probably a little deeper than most people have thought about it.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, though I, I did find it helpful because what happened was these, these moments throughout Scripture where God reminds his people of his covenantal pledges to them. They become coat racks, you know where you you hang your um intellectual coat, thinking about the story of the Bible as a whole, so it helps you weave things together and remember you know the moments along the way
0: that's a great point, so the Bible is a complicated book and it 's just so full of different stories, digressions, all kinds of material that it's easy for people to just get lost in the in, in the wordiness of it all. Mm-hmm. And so it's always helpful when you can find a, a through line to guide you. And the thing about covenants is not only does it give you a thread to follow as you go through the various epochs of Scripture, but it is also the right thread. Like it's the one that corresponds to the way that God initiates his works. So we see God in Scripture Entering into covenant relationships with people. It's how God relates to human beings. So the question that sometimes comes up, well, there's, there's two questions, really. There's uh, one question is people here is referring to the covenant of grace, hmm. and they assume that means the New Testament. And they hear us say the covenant of works and they think, well, that must be the old Testament. So like Moses is the covenant of works. And I guess Jesus is the covenant of grace. And so they're surprised when they find out that when we talk about the covenant of grace, we're talking about everything that happens after the garden of Eden, like all the covenants Mm -hmm. that come after the fall are all part of the covenant of grace. And so, you know, that leads people to wonder like, like, well, Shouldn't it be covenants theology then? Because there's a lot of different covenants. Mm-hmm. Like, like how can you argue that there's one covenant when there's there's so many? So, uh, I think we should acknowledge the diversity of covenants first of all. Yeah. So, if you think about some of God's covenant relationships, as you said, we can go back right to the beginning, to Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, the Genesis account doesn't refer to that as a covenant, although it does give us certain covenantal structures that we can recognize. There are obligations that are imposed on human beings. There's a communion with God that they enjoy that is uh, conditional on this covenant keeping. There is the implication of a promise of blessing that will come through keeping the covenant. There's a glorification That human beings can attain to if they keep that covenant, which of course they don't. They they break it. So when we talk about the covenant of works, we're not referring to the law and Moses. That's really, we're actually talking about the garden where Adam and Eve have this relationship with God that's conditioned on perfect obedience. And it's that condition that's broken when human beings fall into sin. And so everything else that happens, all of God's gracious covenants fall under this category of the covenant of grace. So uh, Noah is a, a covenant with Noah, which is interesting because it's, it's the last time we see God speaking covenantally to all humanity, not just to a particular people. And then we have Abraham, um, covenant with Abraham the covenant with Moses we've alluded to already the covenant with David as well even the new covenant in Jeremiah mm-hmm. that's alluded to and then that is fulfilled in Christ and all of those covenants are part of what we call the covenant of grace and so the question is what unifies them you know why why see them as one covenant not just a bunch of different agreements sort of changing over time. I think the thing you already mentioned, the idea of the the thread Mm -hmm. is a good way of answering that question that you can see a relationship between the covenants, right? Uh, They're not just uh, resets, right? There's some continuity, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the way I've always understood it is that the most fundamental continuity is that God makes promises and those promises go all the way back to the beginning and God doesn't break his promises. So it's always like you get to the next stage in the story and God says, well, you blew it, but I didn't. And I'm still taking this forward. And, you know, it becomes like, well, I'm going to be faithful to what I promised to your fathers because I, you know, I promised to, to Abraham that I was going to like make him into a great nation and we're not there yet. So even as, as the people are failing along the way, God continues to maintain that thread of faithfulness to them. So it's it's this gradual unfolding of that faithfulness towards us.
0: Right, a faithfulness that, that is supplemented with these successive covenants, but, but isn't superseded. Mm-hmm. Like when God makes a covenant with Moses, there's not... A moment there where he says, okay, now I'm revoking the Abrahamic covenant. That didn't work. So we're going to try something new when he makes a covenant with King David. Again, it's in continuity. He's adding some new dimensions. Things are coming more into focus. And the same thing is true with the new covenant, right? It, It rests on the shoulders of the promises that have come before because it is the fulfillment of the promises that were made before. So, Looking for an analogy, like a way to think about all these different covenants and how they relate, I actually think the, the easiest way to understand it might just be to think about the Bible. If you ask yourself this question, did people in the Old Testament have the Bible? The answer is obviously yes, but they didn't have it all, right? They had the Word of God, and there was a kind of completeness to what they had, and, and As evidence of that, I would point you to the Emmaus Road. The Emmaus Road, this is the end of Luke's Gospel, and it is the very first Sunday church service recorded, instituted, and presided over by Jesus himself, where he preaches the word and he administers the sacrament. And when he preaches the word, he preaches the law and the prophets, and his topic is himself. He declares himself from the Law and the Prophets, which is the Old Testament. So from the Bible, the whole of Scripture as it existed at that time. So there's no way that you can look at that and say, well, they didn't have the Bible. The Bible only comes into existence once the New Testament is completed. And yet we recognize that when the New Testament comes, something wondrous is added to that revelation. Right? There's a clarity That emerges that didn't exist before. And I think the relationship of the covenants is the same. When you look at those earlier covenants, you see promises of grace. You see God promising to do good things to his people, to bless them and to multiply them, to give them a kingdom, to reward their obedience. Like all of these promises that God makes— but all of them also have a kind of, uh, I, I guess you could say, like a, uh, not a halfway character, but but they're not fully realized mm-hmm. because there's still these conditional aspects, right? there's still these these things that we have to do, like this this faithfulness to the covenant that that we cannot in our own strength supply, and so God must. Supply our side of the covenant as well. So all of that is gracious. So that's the reason why when we look at this succession of covenants, we don't see a bunch of different unconnected periods in which the work of God is fundamentally different, but rather a developing continuity. It's not fully realized from the beginning. But the thing that it is at the beginning is the same thing as what it will be once it's all realized and fulfilled, Mm -hmm. which is why Jesus can talk about who the sons of Abraham are and Paul can talk about who the sons of Abraham are and and say they are the believers. They are the ones who believe in what Abraham believed, Mm -hmm. because what Abraham Mm -hmm. believed in was Christ. Yeah. And and. That's the end point, I think, where you really see why this covenant theology lens is so valuable. There are so many people in the church today who just don't understand what the purpose or value of the Old Testament is. They think of it as superseded, like rendered unimportant by the New Testament. When the reality is that the New Testament stands on the shoulders of the Old, and that the Old Testament is about Jesus. This Sunday at Grace, we have a pleasure to look forward to, which is the beginning of a new sermon series. When you hear that, you may be a little bit confused because in the last episode of the commentary, we introduced a new sermon series, which was a sermon series on the last few chapters of Zechariah. And now we're starting another series, which is going to be preached by Dan Reed. And it's going to be focused on Paul's epistle to Titus in the New Testament. So let me explain briefly what's going on here. These two sermon series are going to be running concurrently. And Dan and I are going to essentially take turns in the pulpit. So one week, we will be focused on Zechariah, who is giving us very beautiful but mysterious visions of what is to come. And then the next week, we'll be focused on Titus, where we're getting really practical advice and counsel on the reality that is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Dan, I'd like to take a few moments and give people an orientation in the book of Titus, just equip them with a few ideas, do some groundwork, if you will, so that when we begin this Sunday with your new series, we'll already be a little bit up to speed and kind of ready to to track with you. So maybe tell us a little bit about the book
1: of Titus in general. It's pretty short. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's very short. It's three chapters. Uh, Paul is very to the point in those chapters. Uh, What we have is Paul has, we assume, been released from prison at the end of Acts, and he has gone on missionary journeys like he tends to do, and he's brought Titus with him. And one of the places that they went was to the island of Crete, right outside of Greece, uh, with the biggest island in the Mediterranean Sea, I believe. And he's planted some churches there. And he's left Titus behind and said, now I want you to go, and I want you to form these churches. And Crete sounds... From what we pick up in
0: this book, like it might be a difficult mission field. There are some details we get about
1: the Cretans that make it seem like they may be a tough community to reach. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting in chapter one, uh, we have this uh, saying about, as Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, we know from other writings that um, to lie, uh, one of the words that they used to lie was to cretinize um, or something <laughs> oh, like oh, that. Uh, yeah, and so they're they're a tough group of people. They're they're really independent, anti authoritarian, and that's going to be a tough place to plant a church. With that, we also have, uh, Paul calls out the circumcision party, and so we have Jews that have come in um, that are living there, and they want Christians to to be Judaized and go back to more of a Jewish style of religion, and so Paul is really fighting with people on both ends of the spectrum there. So that's a recurring challenge throughout this period where
0: uh, people, there's some confusion about what the Christian church is. You know, is this just an invitation for Gentiles to get on board and start attending synagogue and be more Jewish in their customs, or is it something else? And so you see in all of these epistles some concern about people who are still essentially trying to pass off a form of Old Testament religion as the gospel But in this context, it's especially acute because it's not just the Judaizers, but it's the Cretans themselves that present these challenges. So Titus, it sounds like, has his work cut out for him. He's got a really tough audience, just in general, of people that that, uh, it's going to be hard for him, culturally speaking, to bridge that gap. And at the same time, There are other people on the ground who seem to be representing Christianity, but but what they're teaching isn't actually the gospel. Ironically, though, that's not such an unusual combination, right? That's one I think a a lot of us could relate to in the here and now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, As I was looking through Titus and just reading through it, uh, again, it's short, so you can read through it quickly. And I would suggest everyone read it in preparation. but as you go through it, it looks like it's this letter from Paul to Titus to from a very specific person to a minister and he's giving instructions to a minister uh, but as you as I read through it over and over and over, I realized that there, there's so much value for the church there, there's a sort of focus on the church and how the right. church is formed yeah. yeah. Yep, the, the, the churches form that the issues that were faced um, 2,000 years ago are the same issues that we face today. So the sermon
0: series is called The Gracious Community, and you're going to be looking at specifically the lessons that Paul gives to Titus, which actually apply to us as a church that's seeking to be uh, nurtured in grace. But but the way that that nurturing happens is really interesting. The subtitle, I think, of the series really points that out.
1: What's the subtitle of, of this series? How Sound Doctrine Forms the Church, Lessons from the Book of Titus.
0: So Sound Doctrine is what forms the church into a gracious community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really going to be interesting for people to think about because when we think about what makes a gracious community, oftentimes we imagine it's something like uh, soft peddling mm. the doctrinal side and emphasizing the relational. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the gracious thing to do is not to uh, put too much emphasis on the doctrinal things. And yet Paul is coming at this just the other way around, isn't he? He's, he's mm. really... Pushing soundness of doctrine as the foundation for the gracious community, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Paul Paul does this in every book, uh, but he goes through and talks about how there there are when you become a Christian and uh, in, in your knowledge of Christ, there is grace that everything that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do. Uh, to earn more favor from God in that sense. But when we become Christians, we're brought into a family. And what we believe makes its way out in what we say and in what we do. And so it's very important that Christians are taking the doctrine and that they're living it out, and that they're not as the Cretans were doing. uh, He says, Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And as a community, we need to put both things together. We need to say we believe these things about Christ. We believe these things theologically, but it works itself out in our lives. And so sound doctrine should change the way we live our lives. Well, this Sunday, the series
0: begins with a look at chapter one of Titus. So as Dan said, I encourage you to read that in advance and reflect on it. Dan's going to be biting off a lot in this first (laughs) sermon, looking at the nature of authority, where it comes from, what opposes it. And so read up on Titus 1 and come to church this Sunday, ready to receive the word. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Dan. We look forward to hearing more from you on the commentary in the future. And thank you, as always, Cameron. And thanks to you, our listeners. We appreciate you spending this time with us. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.